There is nothing in the Bible about Lent. Um, it is an entirely constructed period of time by the church. It is no holier than any other time of the year. You won't get closer to God just because this is the season of Lent. If you ate pancakes on Tuesday, and if you came on Wednesday and had your head smudged with ash, you aren't any closer to God than the people sitting in and around uh, this church who didn't. Sorry, Steve, the extra pancakes didn't give you extra blessings. In the same way that Jesus said the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath, Lent was made for humankind and not humankind for Lent. But Lent can be helpful. We all need to rethink, refocus, rebuild and restore. And every one of us can go deeper with God. Lent can be a time when we can build a rhythm and a pattern to our lives. A sense of discipline that prioritises God rather than our own self-interests. Last year at the start of Lent, my gym ran a 12-week challenge. And in my foolishness, um, I signed up along with Leanne as well. And although... I haven't been as hardcore as I was in those 12 weeks. It did create a rhythm and a pattern that has made me much healthier and fitter than I was 12 months ago. In the same way, Lent can be like a 40-day challenge. And as we begin our journey through the Lent, uh, the mainline churches always... Uh, start their first Sunday in Lent with a story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. It's in both uh, the first two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, and today we hear from Luke. It's an intriguing and mysterious story. It's um, something that, as um, a reader, you, you read this passage and you think, ooh, I wonder how that all played out. And, and he must, Jesus must have told his disciples about this experience because he was there by himself in the 40 days. But for us living in, the, in a modern world, in a Western world, it's even more remote. I'm not sure any of you have ever done a prolonged fast, even anywhere close to four days, let alone 40 days. And also, while we are aware of evil in the world and, and we do try and understand what it means for the devil to be present in our world, I'm not sure there are many, if any, amongst us that have had such a real or tangible experience of the devil that they might transport us to a foreign, distant city. The harder it is to find personal connection with a Bible passage, the harder it is for us to answer these questions. What does this passage tell me about myself? Or what does this passage tell me that I need to do? 
The problem is when we read the Bible like this, well, I'm sorry, but there's no other way to, than sugar, to sugarcoat this reality, but the Bible is not always about us. It would be easy to look at this passage and pick up on the word temptation and launch into a message about how each one of us has to stay away from the evils of this world and say no just like Jesus did. Better still, if we can identify all the things that we're tempted by and that we give into, we can give them all up for Lent. But much of the Bible, including today's passage, needs us, in the first instance, to put aside our own agendas, to put aside our immediate needs and really look at what God is doing. Unsurprisingly, I've found that if we can seek first the activity of God, then it's actually not too hard to find hope and a hope that we can personally relate to. The temptations of Jesus introduce the big questions that the early church wrestled with for the first four centuries of its existence until they formed the creeds of the church. Who is God? What is the nature of God? How does Jesus relate to God the Father? In many ways, we're still wrestling with these questions today. The temptations of Jesus try to tell us who God is, but they don't even try to tell us who we are or what we should do or try and explain the difference between good and evil in the world that we live in. Well, what's in it for us, you might ask? It's sounding awfully heavy and theological, Stuart. Well, actually, I think there is everything in this passage for us. I tend to believe that we are all too ready to long for a saviour who will meet our needs, who will fix our problems, who will fix the problems that we see are wrong with the world. But right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke clearly shows that Jesus will not be this type of build-to-order saviour. For us to understand what is going on in the context of this passage, it's helpful to look back through Scripture and Israel's history. The details and the themes in this encounter with Jesus and the devil in the wilderness bring to mind the exodus wanderings of the people of Israel. After they escaped out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Like the people of Israel, Jesus gets hungry in the wilderness. Like the people of Israel, Jesus is tempted to fall down to worship in the wilderness. But the people of Israel built a, a golden calf. Jesus says no. 
the setting, the symbolism of 40, the character of the three temptations, and the replies of Jesus all from Deuteronomy, that part of the Bible, point to the trials of Israel with one critical difference. Where in the Exodus wanderings we see the people of Israel failing time and time again and God's love and compassion and mercy welcoming them back. In this encounter, we see Jesus resisting those temptations and the character of the Messiah emerging. This temptation story also prompts us to look ahead in our Bibles. In Jesus' ministry, Jesus also moves from the wilderness to the mountain, then to the temple. And along the way, Jesus gracefully meets the economic, the political, and the religious challenges that were presented to him. He just doesn't meet them in the way that the devil tempts him with. Interestingly, when you examine what the tests that the devil puts to Jesus, you'll find that they're not to get Jesus to do bad things. If Jesus was to turn that stone into bread, that's not in and of itself bad. He'd just feed his hunger. But it would also mean that Jesus could turn all the stones in that rocky wilderness into bread. Has anybody been to the Holy Land and seen the, that, that wilderness area? It's on my bucket list. But from pictures I've seen, there's rocks everywhere. Jesus could turn all of those into bread, feeding all hungry people. The devil's challenging Jesus to be a new type of Moses with his own version of manna from heaven. And in Jesus' reply, he draws on Moses' own words. Bread in and of itself is fine, it's good, it's healthy, unless you have a gluten intolerance. But bread in and of itself is not sufficient to define the mission and the ministry and the character and the identity of Jesus. In the second test, the devil is presented to us as the ruler of this world. One might say when you look at the goings-on and the leadership in, in our world, you might argue that the devil is still ruling the world in a lot of ways. But for the price of worshipping and honouring this authority, the devil says you'll hand all over to Jesus. If you remember your history, the known world at that time was under Roman authority. The Romans weren't known for their gentle peace. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was a brutal peace. Many were oppressed. Many 
were put into slavery. Many were killed and tortured. A regime change at that particular time would have been for the betterment of the world. But Jesus' reply says that even playing the world's game for a good purpose would actually be doing something that is less than putting God first. And in his reply, Jesus sums up our theme for the year, that we seek God first before anything else. The last test concludes in Jerusalem. The place where Jesus will ultimately conclude his three-year ministry. The place of death and resurrection. The place where the church begins for the first time. The devil reminds Jesus of scripture. And if you've been paying attention uh, to those critical of the church, they're often the first to throw scripture back in our faces to prove that we're wrong. And the devil does this uh, to Jesus. And Jesus is well aware that the temple had been corrupted. And surely a cleansing of the temple would be a good thing as well. But Jesus, again, using the words from Deuteronomy and Moses, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. What happened in Massa, you might ask? Well, if you turn to Exodus 17, you find out. See, the Israelites were quarrelling amongst themselves and they weren't happy at what was going on and asking, well, is God really with us? If he is, he should prove it. What Jesus is saying to us here is demanding proof of God so that we get our own way is not going to be what Jesus is about. It's not the relationship that he came to model and it's not the relationship that he wants to make available to us. Ironically, as I said, what the devil's tempting Jesus with are not bad things in and of themselves, but what they are are three shortcuts. Three ways of Jesus completing his mission and ministry with three snaps of his fingers. His work could have been done. No world hunger. Peace on earth. And the righteous protected while the wicked are tossed out. Now, I'm the first to admit I love a good shortcut. If there's a way of navigating the traffic that's going to get me there quicker, I'm willing to risk it. As a musician, I have lived and continue to live by the code, if you can't make it, fake it. When I was studying, I was always looking for the easy way out the way I could do the bare minimum of research so that I could only study the things that were going to be on the exam or in the assignments and forget about the rest. If you find an app 
that makes a process easier, please let me know because I will download it straight away. My dad has just finished reading uh, a book called God is Good for You uh, when he was down visiting at our house. He normally reads a book or two while he's visiting. Um, and he, he got to the end of the book. He said, I'll leave that for you, Stuart, to, to read. Um, but all the good stuff's in the last chapter. I thought, awesome. <laughs> That's my kind of book. <laughs> Straight to the last chapter, I get everything I need to know. The problem, though, is when you take a shortcut, you can get lost. And you risk the experience of learning. I think the most dangerous temptation we have as a follower of Jesus and a believer in the one true God is for us convincing ourselves that we can create a saviour who meets only our immediate needs and a God of our own desire and design. In this wilderness encounter, Jesus clearly says that I'm not here to bring quick fixes, easy answers. I'm not here to please the masses. Even though the devil knows that he could easily have done each of those three things that he's tempted him with, Jesus begins his three years of ministry by getting amongst the mess, the brokenness, the dysfunction and the disaster of the world in which he was born into. In the very next passage, the first thing he does after being tempted is he goes back to his own home region, to Nazareth, and he gets run out of town. Until Jesus comes again, this is the world that you and I are living in still, full of mess and brokenness, disaster and dysfunction. But there's one big difference. We now know who Jesus is. We know our Messiah. We can understand why he came. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to journey to a, a deeper understanding. But the temptation remains. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been guilty of regularly praying to a saviour who can snap his fingers and make all my problems go away. Dear Lord, God, if you just do this one thing for me now, make it all better, make it go away. But as we begin this journey through the Gospel of Luke, the journey with Jesus to the cross, from the cross to the empty tomb, I'd like us to take a question with us on the journey. What do we find out about who Jesus is, the nature of God, and God's intervention in the world because Jesus did not take these shortcuts. What do we find out about who Jesus is and the nature of God and the nature of God's intervention in our world by Jesus' struggle, by his vulnerability, by his suffering, 
and by the relationships that he formed. I'll give you the answers now. Depth of relationship, hope, intimacy, strength, eternal life. I could go on. But this is work that we need to do ourselves, especially if you haven't asked these particular questions before. As I finish up this morning, I want to bring it back to us. I mean, we can't help ourselves but ask, well, what can I do for me right now, God, with this? We're wired that way. Interestingly, the devil doesn't question who Jesus is. He tries to get Jesus to question his own identity. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. And the one thing that we can do right now is not to fall for that temptation. A temptation to believe that our identity is anything other than found in who Jesus is. There's a famous American uh, author, theologian and civil rights leader, Howard Thurman. He said in one of his addresses, there is something in every one of you that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. It is the only true guide you will ever have. And if you can't hear it, you will all spend your life at the end of the strings that someone else is pulling. My friends, there's, there's no shortage of people who are wanting to pull our strings and convince us of who we are or who we should be. It's not easy work to listen to that genuineness inside each one of us. It leaves us vulnerable. In a lot of ways, it's simpler just to manage and meet the expectations of those around us to avoid disappointment, making others feel disappointed in us, to claim to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, means that you and I are children of God. This is our identity. As much as the world might try and tempt us to believe something else, you and I are children of God. Children who make mistakes, who get it wrong, but who are loved unconditionally by our God. As we begin this Lenten journey, I'm asking you, do you believe that? Does it make a difference in your life? Are we willing to allow those around us, the influences of our world, to pull us in a different direction? away from living out this identity. Don't give in. Don't fall for it. Trust that there is nothing but hope found in this identity. Let us pray.
Lord God, we find in you a saviour who will never leave us, who is not going to run away and abandon us when things get difficult and hard, who knows we're struggling and when we're struggling, when we're trying to put on a face that's showing the world that we've got it together and when underneath everything is falling apart. Lord, help us to know that you are with us. Help us to see who you really are. Help us not to fall for the trap of of trying to believe in a God or in a saviour that's just in it for us to feel good. But in a God who promises never to leave us, especially when things aren't good. And be with us this morning as we seek your kingdom first and find our hope in you. Would you stand with us as we sing, seek first? Seek first your kingdom. Seek.